This episode of So Now What with Waleed Ali contains a discussion about suicide. If this raises any issues for you, please contact Lifeline Australia on 131114. The COVID-19 pandemic has turned our world upside down. Meeting this challenge is bigger than any Australian. From how we work and how we live. Stay at home. Stay at home. Stay at home. Don't travel. To the very basics of human interaction. Keep that social distance. If you're in an enclosed space, you should be wearing a mask. This is a time of total upheaval. It is a test of our nation. If you want this to be over, you've got to follow the rules. For many, 2020 will be the toughest year of our lives. And as we look to life beyond the virus, we ask, so now what? Today, youth... Millennials and Gen Z, these are two generations who've been on the receiving end of all kinds of ire and also op-eds over the years. And now they're on the receiving end of everything that COVID-19 implies, a global recession, social upheaval, and of course, a pandemic recovery that's going to cast a shadow over much of their lives. Young people have been hit really, really hard by the COVID recession, probably harder than anyone else. The lessons from past crises show that young people are often the last in and often the first out of a job. Here are some figures just to illustrate it briefly, but the youth unemployment rate is at 15.6%. More than that, and probably more instructive than that, is the underutilisation rate, which is estimated right now at about 60%. And they're the highest levels that we've seen since the Great Depression. This is significant because young people are supposed to be the ones who are our future and they inherit our society, our institutions. They inherit the earth, I suppose. But in the shadow of COVID-19, what exactly will they inherit? And what, if anything, will they be able to do with that inheritance? For a generation of young Australians looking to their future and its possibilities, the scope seems to have narrowed and plans that once seemed really sure now seem like they could be far off dreams. So as we start to move beyond COVID and take stock of the debris, what could the future look like for young people? How deeply will they be affected? Will they spend their entire lives just working off the debt that we've accumulated fighting the virus? And then beyond economics, what does it mean for them socially? Will Gen Z simply become what's being touted as Generation COVID? What exactly does that mean? It seems that 2020 was a hell of a year to come of age. And so it's a hell of a thing for us to try to grapple with today. I'm going to need some help. So I'm joined by a couple of people who are very well equipped to provide it. Economist Angela Jackson is from Equity Economics and Claire Madden is a social researcher and expert on Gen Z. And they both qualify, I think, for being younger than me. I won't inquire. I'll just assume for the rest of the show. Thank you very much to both of you for joining me today and helping me out. Thanks, Ollie. Great to be with you. Let's start before COVID-19, if that's possible. And maybe I'll start with you, Claire, because this is very much the area of your research. What can you tell us about what was going on with Gen Z or millennials? You can tease those apart uh, as you like. Before COVID-19 hit, what were the kind of dynamics that we were already having to deal with? Well, our Gen Zs, we define them as born from 1995 through to 2009. So they follow our millennials, our Gen Ys, born 1980 to 1994. And really, our Gen Zs have been the most technologically immersed generation their whole lives. They've been exposed to extraordinary change and disruption, the way that life's become so much more convenient through all the apps and the technology. Globalization, they've been the most global youth culture we've ever seen. 
and become accustomed to be able, being able to online shop, order something from anywhere around the world, have it delivered on their doorstep, often with free shipping. They've really been a very connected generation and extremely empowered with options. So they were embracing the gig economy. They felt that they, you know, had so many opportunities, so many options, didn't need to make long-term commitments to organizations or jobs or anything because really they could just move very rapidly and easily between opportunities. Yeah, but that to me, Angela, sounds like they were beset with both as consumers and as workers insecure work. Would that be a fair assumption? Uh, yeah, look, that's certainly the case. And I think, you know, for young people in particular in the labour market, while you know, the economy overall is probably as healthy as it has been in a generation coming into COVID-19. This sort of rise in insecure work and the gig economy meant that they didn't have the security of prior generations and perhaps didn't have employers investing in them as much. I think probably, um, you know, from the sort of the Gen Y experience, employers are a little bit more hesitant about investing in young people than they had been previously. But the generation also, I think, just to sort of add to, was on track before this to be the most educated generation that we've ever had. So they had a lot going for them um, in terms of that. And they were coming into the healthiest economy globally we had seen in sort of 20 years. So things were looking pretty good uh, before COVID-19. Okay, so that's a bit of an economic picture, but then there's the the social picture and perhaps even the psychological picture, Claire. And here I, I sort of am minded immediately of all of that discussion we saw about skyrocketing levels of anxiety, for example, about the impact of social media on their socialization, um, even on their own psychology. How much of those sorts of impressions that you might have from taking in various bits of news coverage would you say were accurate? Even in the research I've done for years with Gen Z, I've been surprised at the depth and extent to which social media is a part of who they are. So I think the difference between millennials and then Gen Zs is the age at which Gen Z have been exposed to social media and has meant in their developmental years, in their teenage years, they've been really managing their personal brand online at the same time that they're trying to work out who they are offline. And so their sense of identity, their locus of identity and where they've got their feedback, their affirmation, their approval has often been in that online space just as much as as offline. And I, I think that's been a, a key contributor to a lot of the, the stress and the anxiety that young people do feel because that can create a fragile sense of self, a very insecure sense of self when it's dependent on external validation constantly. Do I get enough likes? Am I getting enough comments on that. And so it hasn't provided the most secure foundation for a lot of young people. So it's definitely affected affected their sense of self. And I think whilst there've been some advantages, they're very connected and they really stay aware of each other as a tribe. They're constantly in touch with their friends. There's also the flip side, which is a lot of stress, the FOMO, the fear of missing out, the constant comparison of their offline life with everyone's amazing picture perfect Instagram life that they wrestle with. So if that sort of heightened anxiety that we've been reading about is accurate, you know, that it actually describes something real, does that mean before we get to COVID-19 itself, but they were coming in psychologically to this hugely disruptive experience in the very worst state to try to deal with it? Well, I'd just say in a different sort of state than perhaps other generations who face different crises, 
in some ways their online connection has helped them be able to stay at least connected in some way through COVID, even when restrictions were were intense. But it's certainly also challenged their well-being in, in so many ways. They're a deeply social generation and having a lot of restrictions placed around that and not being able to connect. Even though they do connect online all the time, they also really value the offline time and connections. And so it, it really has had a huge impact on them relationally and socially. So Angela, uh, I'm interested in this question of resilience and we can talk about it psychologically. We can also talk about it economically. How would you characterize the economic resilience of, of Generation Z? And you can even make it millennials if you like coming into something like COVID? Look, I think, you know, the mental health, you can't separate from the economic either. Like we know that suffering from depression or anxiety does impact your ability to participate in education and, and in the workforce and all those issues. So from that perspective, there was a, an issue there for this generation in particular. And we have seen rising rates of anxiety over time. Social media is part of that. I think also the thing to mention here, and this is not trying to go to the future, is climate change, I think has been something that this generation has had to sit with throughout their life and that causes significant levels of anxiety for them, this idea that in the future this uncontrollable thing is going to happen. It upsets me so much because I just don't know if they're going to do anything. And I just, I'm so concerned with the fact that if they're not going to change anything, then what's going to happen to humankind? What's going to happen to our, what's going to happen to the whole world? So their overall resilience is good, though, because they have a high level of education. And so this is probably the most important thing from an economic perspective in terms of someone's life course. And so even though they are going to struggle in the you know, months and years ahead, they will have that hopefully to fall back on, assuming that they haven't lost you know, some of that during the pandemic itself. So I think they are relatively economically resilient as a group because of that high level of education. When I think about them economically, though, coming into this, I, I think about a kind of structural exclusion from the benefits of the economy, particularly in the form of the housing market. But we've mentioned already insecure work, you know, the, the availability of solid work. Am I overstating that sort of concern? Well, I think for the millennials potentially, if you're Gen Zs, this is a bit morbid, but what they're going to hopefully benefit from is effectively the boomers passing away and selling those bigger houses. So there is actually a view within the real estate sort of market that as a generation, they may do a lot better than the millennials have done in terms of getting into the housing market itself. But it is certainly true that housing affordability is a massive issue and is going to continue to be one in certainly the short to medium term. But in that longer term, when they're ready to buy, it could well be that it's quite a good time to buy. Well, would it, would it be movement or will there just be inheritance? Well, that's right. They'll also potentially benefit from some of that inheritance, potentially their grandparents. I think there will be you know, some movement that we haven't necessarily seen in the last sort of 20 years um, but yes, it depends on where those monies flow to individuals. But I think overall, as a generation, they'll benefit more than the millennials have. Okay, so let's get to COVID then. We've now got a generation that has a lot of insecure work that's economically vulnerable, but highly educated. That's very active online, but potentially partly as a result of that, are dealing with quite high levels of anxiety relative to other generations. So what happens when a global pandemic hits you in that sort of state, Claire? Well, in the initial research I've been doing with our young people this year, the key theme that's come through is this fear of security. 
If you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it basically shows our, our survival needs, our security needs need to be met. And then we start caring about our social needs, our self-esteem and our self-actualization needs. And if you think about what Gen Z have been you know, talking about and millennials as well, in terms of what matters to them in their career for years, I've been hearing social needs. Oh, I need friends at work. I want my boss to be relatable. My self-esteem needs. So I want to make a worthwhile contribution and use my skills. Self-actualization. I want to be part of a bigger purpose. I want to make a difference in the world. And they're all really good things. And they're those higher order needs that um, Maslow's hierarchy talks about. But for the first time, I started hearing them talk about these survival and security needs. I don't mind what job I have. I just need a job. Wow, I'm one of the lucky ones who still has a job. Oh, I'm, I'm much more careful now about what I'm spending. I'm going to save a buffer. And, and so this different way of thinking suddenly emerged because it's really the first uh, economic crisis that this generation here in Australia have really faced in, in their lifetime. And so it's, it's starting to, I guess, recalibrate them a little bit. And, you know, job security, which wasn't really a great concern because they had such flexibility and all those options and they'd just be able to move around quite easily, particularly with the gig economy. And yet suddenly job security is starting to matter a lot more. Financial security is starting to be a thing that they uh, are really starting to think about. So I think that's been a key shift that's happened with our young people this year. But they would hardly be alone in that, would they? I, mean, I feel like I've heard a lot of that language from people of all generations through this because it's been so long since we had a recession and because it happened so rapidly and, like, and so graphically. Like you could see all those cues at the front of Centrelink. That, like that was, what was it that, that day where suddenly a million people were, were unemployed? Like we haven't lived through anything like that. So I, I kind of wonder how universal that response was. Yeah, well, all the generations, I think we're, we're saving saving more money where and th- than we have before, and certainly it's something that is cutting across the different generations. But I think what's unique is that these younger generations really have been protected, even from the GFC and, and earlier recessions. That's just not been in their context at all, and they've been incredibly empowered. And even themselves, they'll say, "Oh, we've been given everything on a silver platter." And in some ways, I, I think perhaps this is a recession that, that will actually be what this generation needs in a way to actually see them come out a lot stronger, to see them come out actually as that resilient generation and have that strong work ethic and everything. I think this could be one of those opportunities and turning points for our young generations who now will be able to come through, put all their skills and entrepreneurial gifts to work and actually rebuild our society and have an opportunity to really become that resilient generation. All right. So so there's a lot there I want to come back to actually, Claire, because there's rich pickings, I think, in what you've just said. But before we do that, Angela, let's talk economically. I mentioned some figures there that were just about underemployment and employment. You're an economist, so you will have far richer figures (laughs) than I have to try to illustrate this. But just how serious and profound was the economic damage to young people? Oh, look, it was huge. And, I mean, the reason for that uh, was the nature of their work, as we've discussed. You know, they had insecure work and casual work, so it was easier to lay them off than, you know, people in secure jobs. And then the nature of where they're working. So in retail, in hospitality, in the arts, where, you know, young people predominantly have their work and get their work was where the pandemic really hit hard um, in terms of those jobs. 
But even today, you know, as the economy is apparently recovered or on the way to recovery, they still account the 15 to 24-year-olds 40% of all job losses, while they only account for around 15% of the labour force. So it really has fallen on that 15 to 24 age bracket. At a crucial time in their, you know, labour market participation, you know, those first few years are really important uh, in terms of getting the experience and the skills you need to go forward and losing your job then or not getting that first job can have impacts over five to 10 years in terms of your earnings. So look, while I agree there could be a silver lining in all of this in terms of building resilience, a lot of the research shows that that's probably not the case, that life is going to be a bit harder for this generation in the next five to 10 years. Can I just uh, get you to explain the the jobs that were lost and the jobs that came back first? Because we heard this with women particularly, that women got disproportionately affected uh, when jobs were lost at the onset of the pandemic, but then women's jobs came back quicker. The government was certainly talking about that around budget time, perhaps because that was handy for them. (laughs) But is that true of young people or have they got the worst of both ends of it? What we've really seen is that the comeback in jobs has been mainly part-time jobs. And so women did do initially quite well. But what we've seen is as full-time work has come back in the last couple of months, it's been men who've mainly filled those jobs. So last month, for example, I think around 100,000 jobs, uh, full-time jobs were created across Australia, but they predominantly went to men, whereas women actually went back in full-time employment. So that gender balance, which is also relevant for younger Australians. So of those job losses in the 15 to 24 year old age group, around two thirds have been young females losing their job. So yes, there has been a comeback, but it hasn't been that strong. You're still seeing you know, huge job losses across retail, across hospitality, across the arts um, in the range of sort of 10 to 15% less jobs than there were at the start of the pandemic. So the recovery isn't sort of as significant in those sectors as maybe people have been led to believe. It's interesting because you you would have thought that they would bounce back really strongly, especially in a place like Victoria, once the the lockdown was eased, that they're precisely the things that would be coming back. And maybe they will. So, I mean, the thing is, you know, obviously we're still early days, particularly in Victoria, you know, we're still seeing restrictions lifted, you know, week to week. And so maybe some of those jobs will come back. I think particularly tourism and the arts sector, clearly, uh, are still really affected and they employ a lot of young people. And they're good jobs, generally speaking, in hospitality for young people, whether it's when they're in uni or they're just gaining some of that early experience and their management experience. And so, but those jobs have gone and they haven't come back yet. There's the economic impact of that, Claire. I'm interested in the psychological impact of being disrupted at that sort of point of your career, because as Angela explains, it's formative, right? You're setting things up. And when you're disrupted at that point, it can do things to you mentally, I assume, because life just suddenly isn't at all what you thought it was going to be. Have you been able to detect what the impact of that might be or is it too early to tell? Yeah, well, a lot of the comments have been around the mental health and the impacts of job losses. Um, and it's been a, a long year for many people who've been you know, applying for jobs and not even getting a look in with hundreds of people applying for that one position. It's, it's been incredibly challenging. And that, that really does wear you down if you're constantly applying, trying, and, and just no doors opening. 
And I think that it's a key stage of finding your independence. It's when people start to move out from living with mum and dad, whereas this is a sort of um, year where people have been returning to, to mum and dad and, and moving back out of their city apartments and back to, to mum and dad out in the suburbs because there's no need to be near the city. Nothing's been open. Work hasn't been there. And um, of course, the cost of living is too much when you're out of a job. So I think it's, it is it is a real setback in that way for, for young people where and they've just started to take those steps forward. Other areas like even key life markers, finishing school, being able to go overseas, that's a huge way that young people in Australia sort of feel like they're finding their independence. And again, many, many plans have just been cancelled. Important life events, weddings and different events all cancelled. And this this cumulative effect, and I think the uncertainty that everyone's been talking about was how long is this going to go for? that if, you know, we knew I was only going to be a month or two or whatever, people would find that a lot easier to handle than just this uncertainty of when is life coming back and what's the impact of this? So so that when you add the layers, I think there's been a lot of fatigue, you know, that people responded and, and changed their lifestyle drastically as required with the restrictions. And when you add that to, you know, unemployment and not having something to get up and go to every day, it, it certainly has an impact on your mental well-being. I was interested to watch how big an issue school formals became in New South Wales. I want Year 12 students and their families and their teachers and school communities to know that you will be able to have those key milestone events and you will have something to look forward to after the HSC. It was one of those things that just floated along the news cycle for ages. I didn't pay much attention to it until eventually I think I saw Gladys Berejiklian talking about it at a press conference and I thought, okay, this is clearly reaching a level of... um, political relevance here that's very significant. Is there something we perhaps underestimate about the significance of that, Claire, that it's like, you know, we look at it and it's it's one night that probably a hell of a lot of people would rather not have, actually, if we're being honest, <laughs> in, their, in their lives at high school. Um, it's all a bit awkward. But is there more to it than that sort of dismissive account? Yeah, and even the the comments around the year 12 students were so disappointed about not being able to go to school and have their classes at school and a lot of worry about what's this going to mean for my final results? What's this going to mean for my future, for getting into university? The whole context of their lives for the last 13 years has been schooling and education, working up to this climax year of finishing school, your big exams, and then the celebrations that, that follow. Obviously, formal being one of those those important markers of we did it, we're finished. And and I think taking that away from people, and you know, in many cases they've been able to have them, but that sense of is that going to happen and are we going to even be able to have a formal is just that sense of you know, all this that I've been looking forward to and working hard for and, and building up to and it's taken away. It, it, it can really be a letdown. And it's those little things that often represent so much more in someone's life. So does the fact that they got the formals in the end fix it? Or, or is the uncertainty along the way enough that the, the disruption and the, and the psychological or even social impact already made? Well, they'll, they'll be a forever a cohort that was the, the COVID cohort for their final year of school, no doubt. <laughs> you know, it's, it's an extremely unique situation and they will have bonded around that for, for life. And I think where they did get the formals, that certainly would be a, um, a breath of fresh air for them and a sense of encouragement for them. But of course, the, the bigger context of 2020 will be forever etched in their memory. How was your formal, Angela? Uh, yeah, look, not a highlight. I have to say it was probably one of the worst dresses you've ever seen. But um, <laughs> look, it was 
It was fun. I mean, I, I think really it goes to this issue around the locus of control, though, which we've sort of been skirting around, which um, is where this generation really and, and what the lasting impact might well be is this idea of things are out of their control and that they've got even less control than maybe they thought before. And that's what may well impact them more long term. And it's really whether it's that or the resilience that they've gained wins out, I think, because if they feel they can't control the events around them as much as perhaps they once thought, then that can affect their motivation and it can affect their mental health going forward. And that's really where that uncertainty comes in. You know, we've all had disruptions this year. There's no doubt about that. But, you know, I was laughing with a friend the other day. He's got four kids, including two twins under three. And she said, look, really, my life hasn't changed that much. And so for older generations, you know, socially, yes, we've missed seeing friends, of course, and family, but for young people missing that final year of school, nothing really replaces that or missing that first year of university. You know, they are very active social periods of your life where you form friendships and you learn new social skills that you take with you through life. And so, you know, while I don't want to say, you know, this is catastrophic, um, you know, it is a big deal. And we do want to look at this generation about, well, what can we do in the years ahead to maybe help recreate in some ways? I'm not saying we should have redo formals. I think that might be going a bit far, but <laughs> certainly compensate for some of these losses and understand the impact that it may well have had on their development. You're still scarred by that dress, aren't you? It was horrific. I Yeah, anyway, don't worry about it. <laughs> Look, I, I know you're making a much more serious point, but if you could just send us a photo of that, we could put it on the website. Yeah, no, and, that's um, okay. I think I, I'm you sure? pretty sure I burnt them, actually. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. It's a shame. I really thought it could enrich the experience. And it was pretty digital too, so yeah. Oh, no. Um, if I was being cynical about this, Angela, I might say, well, you know what? Young people are at a period of their lives where they are flexible, they can adapt, they don't have dependence, they don't yet have their career path sorted out. I mean, depending a bit on what age you're talking about, but you know, as a crude generalization, we could sort of say that it's far better that this sort of disruption is visited upon them than it is upon older generations who have three or four kids to worry about, mortgages to pay, a housing market that might be uncertain. So what happens if they can't pay their mortgage all of a sudden? perhaps older parents who are, you know, vulnerable in a health sense or, or whatever. In other words, imagine if it hit that generation, that would be a real catastrophe. What would you say to that kind of analysis? All the research shows that these sort of shocks that hit people when they're younger are more detrimental over their life course. So yes, look, no one is saying that losing your job at any point is a good thing. Of course, it is a bad thing, but it has longer term impacts on younger people than it does on older people. I'm not saying, you know, we should have a generational war about this, but I think we need to reflect on it and accept that that's the reality, that while the health impacts of this pandemic fell predominantly on older generations, the economic impacts are going to fall predominantly on the younger generations. And policies need to account for that and take it, you know, in their stride when, they're, when government's formulating policies to address it. I think ignoring it doesn't do anyone really a service. And it's not about a competition, but it's about understanding. No. Yeah, like it's, you know, like everybody has been affected, but it is recognising that, yeah, for younger people, this is going to have a bigger impact. Well, actually, 
I agreed with you when you said it's not about a competition, but it kind of is, isn't it? Like inevitably, <laughs> whether you want it to be or not, it kind of becomes that way. I'm thinking of, you, you say we need policies to address it. Well, one such policy was the youth wage subsidy. Yep. The government decided it wanted to introduce um, and announced in the budget. And immediately you saw the response from Labor, which I thought was really interesting, which was this will effectively discriminate against older workers who suddenly will be far more expensive and won't be able to get jobs. Our problem isn't that uh, younger people are being given support. It's the 928,000 people who get no support. And what we have here is if you're over 35, you'll have to compete against people who are getting a subsidy. As an economist, I'm interested in your thoughts about whether a youth wage subsidy works. But even as a sort of meta observation, you can see that generational clash play out even if the generations themselves are not the participants in this. It's just sort of an inevitable part of the zero-sum game of something like a wage subsidy in this case. I think ultimately wage subsidy, especially at the level it was set, was probably not ever going to have a huge impact. But it's also worth noting people are going for different types of jobs. So the type of entry-level jobs that you know 20-year-olds are competing for are very different from the type of jobs that older Australians are going to be looking for. And I think we often forget that. We often think that every job is the same, but it's not, and they need different skills and different experience. So I don't see it as the sort of the problem that it has been you know, raised as in terms of older Australians getting back into the labour market. They're different jobs and probably need different supports. Right. So the labour criticism was a bit misconceived, you reckon? Look, I think, uh, yes, to be honest, obviously we need to be worried about all Australians as well. It's not to say that, like I said, in terms of the competition, it's not to say you forget one part or the other, but I think it's important to recognise who's hurting the most and ensure that those people are getting that support. Um, and from a ec- long-term economic perspective, you know, younger Australians, you know, obviously have bigger consequences. So The loss of schooling, for example, you know, has the potential to depress GDP over the next 100 years if it's not addressed in terms of any, you know, loss in skill in that group. So it's important that we address those issues and identify them. We've touched on mental health, but Claire, I want you to expand on that a bit. A recent survey that Swinburne University did found that 41% of 18 to 24-year-olds had thought about suicide in the last month, which I will admit I don't have the data in front of me to compare it to a kind of you know base case that tells me whether that's a big spike. Sounds like a bloody big spike to me. Like It sounds like a really, really concerning figure. Oh, it's an extremely concerning figure. I mean, any young person considering that is extremely concerning. And I, I think that we have a silent pandemic going on here that is, a, is this mental health pandemic. And we, we certainly need to work out how we can really help get the health of our young people on track because life is, is far too precious and far too valuable for this to be something, um, for this, this generation to be, to be dealing with. So, so, I mean, it's challenging because there's so many layers that um, mental health is connected to, like Angela was saying, you can't separate economic health from mental health. You can't separate social and relational well-being from mental health, and on the list goes. And and so so we've got many interconnected factors. But I certainly think it's it's the silent pandemic that we we need to give a lot of attention to. 
in terms of how do we really lift the buoyancy of this generation and the health in this in this space for, for this generation? What are the keys to really helping them get on track and, and feel positive and filled with hope? Do you have any way of being able to tell at this point what's driving a figure like that specifically, like whether it's a sense of uncertainty or whether it's the result of enforced isolation. Is there any way you can tease that stuff out at this point or do you just find out later, probably when it's all a bit too late? Well, let's say there's still a lot of of emerging research to be done and and currently being done on what the you know exact impact and is of of the different areas. Like you say, isolation had a massive impact on on mental health and just you know being limited to only your household and not being able to see family. And I know Victoria's had the hardest time of any place in Australia. And I and I think you know it, it's certainly takes its toll. And it's been a huge year of this for people. So we probably need to realise it's going to take a while to rebuild people's well-being in that in that respect. But I think it's it's hard to exactly pinpoint, you know, it's the isolation that led to this or it's this that led to that. Like we're saying, it's all these interrelated factors that have been very confronting. It's people having to cancel weddings. It's people not being able to go to their families' funerals. It's people not being able to be at important life events because borders were closed. It's people losing loved ones. It's all, all of this that's been one thing after another that has kind of emptied people's tanks and we need to fill it up. There's an interesting metaphor there, isn't there, about coming to this with an empty tank or having your tank emptied as you go through it. And I wonder about that, Angela. Like, Is there something to be said for or about, I should say, the, the lack of experience that young people inevitably bring to something like this, that the, they don't have the accumulated experience of older generations to try to adapt to situations, that they haven't navigated difficult times, or at least as many as older generations, so they have fewer tools to go to in their kit bag. Yeah, look, I think that's part of it. I think, you know, if you look at any of the statistics coming in, you know, rates of anxiety and depression do peak in the younger generations. And that's partly due to that, that sort of lack of, I guess you could say, perspective that you gain with age and the the idea that I will get through this, it'll be okay. But there's also biological factors at play during those periods as well. Right. It's a complicated picture and it's really hard to know how this will play out long term. And I think the most likely thing we can look at is sort of a natural disaster type analogy and there we see that the mental health impacts can be quite long lasting and particularly amongst young people they get post-traumatic stress disorder which can impact their learning and their labour market attachment over the long term so these type of events at sort of those key developmental stages can have longer lasting impacts and so we are going to need I think a really huge investment we've seen it the government's clearly recognised that mental health is a huge part of this recovery process but I, I, I feel very strongly that we're going to need a lot more. On that suicide point, and I'll just make this point because I think it's important wherever you have an opportunity to say it's actually quite normal to think about committing suicide mm. and it's important that the stigma around that is reduced so that if you are thinking there is places to go for help, it is quite a normal thing to go through. I think a lot of times when people have that ideation, they feel that it is catastrophic and that means it's the end. It isn't. There is help and that there are resources out there. So Advise Beyond Blue is fantastic or Lifeline, but it is normal. And I think normalising that is an important part of the sort of suicide prevention as well. Yeah, which is kind of why I made the point about not knowing the base level, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Because a, a figure like that is is a bit um, 
bald in a sense. Yeah. It doesn't tell you the depth of the thought. It doesn't explain any of that. So it's important that you make that point, I think, yeah. I think across Australia pre-pandemic, around 600,000 people a year have suicide thoughts, suicidal thoughts. So it's relative, you know, it's not super common, but it's relatively common. Yeah. And obviously, you know, it's just important to recognise that to seek help. That's an important thing. And that lifeline number, by the way, is 13 11 14. 13 11 14. I wonder whether or not there's something to be gained from this experience, though, amongst generations. Let's focus on Generation Z, I suppose, for the moment. But just about the fact that they've all done that together. Like for the rest of their lives, they will be the generation that went through this at that time in their life. And, you know, that's a collective experience. It's something that might create a collective sort of a solidarity or a collective sort of a mindset as they go through life for the rest of their lives. I don't know. Is that that too optimistic of you to take, Claire? I think that's absolutely true. And in that, I think that's going to be a key way that we all move forward together because it's been something that has impacted every single one of us in its various ways. And so together, we're going to build from this. We're going to build a better future together and we can do it together. And I, and I think that it does unify a generation when they go through something difficult, as difficult as it has been. And I think we, you know, we've just talked about all the challenges which are extremely real and do need to be addressed. And on the flip side, I also have a hope and an optimism that we can rebuild from where we are and we can get through this together and actually also find the good things that have come from this year and and keep them in our in our lifestyle in our society so for example the way that we've slowed down the way that we have taken time to get to know the people in our household family spending time together not as much FOMO, not as much fear of missing out because actually we've been more present in the moment. We haven't been missing out on parties. And I think there's many good things that have come. And if we can take the best of that and rebuild, I really do believe this this generation will be a resilient generation that have been forged through the fire. They have been forged through the hard hardship of this year, but can come out better. So take me through that, actually, Claire, because I'm interested in this idea that you raised earlier that this could be the making of this generation. And then I think immediately about my parents or grandparents' generation who, you know, would have gone through the Depression, mm. lived through a war, and they came out with an extraordinary resourcefulness and resilience, uh, a lot of pain. Mm. They're famously frugal, yeah. which is actually, I, I think, a wonderful thing to observe, the way they can just make things work when people like my generation just want to throw everything out and start buying something else to replace it immediately. So th- there was a lot of virtue, I suppose, if, if that's not too heavy a concept to use, that came out of the result of the suffering that they went through. If this is going to be the making of Generation Z, what's being made? Like what, what sort of characteristics do you see that could come out of this for them? I love what you just said about virtue. And you're absolutely right that through suffering, not that anyone would ever put their hand up for suffering or difficulty, that's often where we are, our deeper character is, has an opportunity to be shaped and forged. And we absolutely admire those older generations for their virtues, the work ethic they've had, or like you say, how they're able to just make a way even with very little in their hands. And so I actually think that for our young generation, in a way they've, they've been a very entertainment-saturated generation and life's been increasingly convenient. We've had apps for everything. It's been about fun and it's been about, you know, finding the new fun, fast path. 
And whilst so much of that has good things connected to it, it's actually also kind of um, shortchanged them from some of the deeper lessons in life. And I think that if we can take from this some of those deeper virtues like patience, like resilience, like an empathy for one another, a connectedness to people, an awareness of people going through harder times than us and, and being outward focused, there can be so many good virtues that are established in this generation through this. And I actually think in that way, we can come out stronger than how we went into this. It's interesting, though, that you mentioned the online entertainment forms there, because they've exploded through this experience. I mean, TikTok's become such a huge thing in a way that it wasn't a year ago. And I think the pandemic's been a major part of that. One of the ways in which young people, especially, I think, have socialized through this has been virtually by sharing experiences, sometimes really personal experiences of that online. So while I see what you're gesturing towards, the tools that are in front of them that you've kind of said might be shortchanging them in certain aspects of their lives are the precise things that they've sought refuge in to this point. Oh, absolutely. The platforms in themselves are not bad or not not the issues, but I guess what I am talking about is we can live in this just Google it world where we just want the info and we want it fast and we don't want to consider the deeper learnings around things or take the time to fully understand. We just want the answer and we want to move fast. And friends have become sometimes reduced to the number of followers we've got on our social media accounts rather than feeling like we have deep, close relationships where people know us really closely and, and intimately. In, in, in some ways, I'd say prior to COVID, we'd substituted a depth of relationship for a breadth of connection. We'd substituted a depth of knowledge for a breadth of information. And what I am anticipating and wondering if we can come through this with some learnings that gives us actually as a whole society, as a whole community, as a nation, and certainly as a a young generation with some areas of depth that, hey, we didn't put our hands up to go through this, but let's take the good from what we've been through and and what actually are the, the virtues, the characteristics that we can actually build into our lives for our generation and those to come after us. So this delivers us naturally to thinking about what COVID means for the lives of young people beyond, like well beyond the pandemic, for the rest of their lives, 50 years, 60 years, 70 years hence. So, Angela, this is where you as an economist basically have to solve all these problems for us. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, easy. I'm interested in this idea that a year that you have been deprived now can disrupt things for the rest of your working life. I don't intuitively understand it. Like, I feel like I sort of get it. Yeah. But it feels, it just feels naturally like an overstatement, I think, to a lot of people who are not trained economically. So, can you be specific about how that works? I mean, it really comes down to this issue, particularly around education, but also employment. But if we look at education, that, you know, if you lose three months of education or of schooling, then that will lower your lifetime earnings by around 3%. And it seems like a lot, but these are sort of studies that have controlled for all other factors and have just looked at that impact of education. And then there's also obviously the impact of those that don't return to school or maybe don't return with the same vigour that they had before and so maybe drop out of school a bit earlier. And so there's that risk, I think, going forward of people dropping out of school in the next year or two because they fell behind and they just never really catch up. And so there is this long-term economic impact. I get that as an idea. If you miss three months of school, then you're behind. But that seems to me inevitably to be the kind of thing you would study as missing three months relative to everybody else. In this case, it seems like everybody's missed 
the same. Like there are, you know, certainly class differences in this yep. and so on. There are differences state to state, but your whole cohort has kind of been through a similar experience. Does that dampen the effects of something like that? Potentially, but not really. So a lot of the studies that look at this look at the change of school age uh, that occurred you know, at certain points in history at certain times, so where the whole cohort gets an extra year or one less year of schooling and how that then impacts on lifetime earnings. And so even if you control for the fact that there is that variation between cohorts and so everyone's in the same boat, you still have that lifelong impact. And that's just because the more educated you are, the more productive you are in the workplace. And also education tends to build on itself. So the more that you learnt yesterday, the more that you can learn today. And so if you didn't learn something yesterday, then you can't learn it today. So you just don't end up at the same endpoint that you would have. And that's why there is this impact. But you know, there's things you can do. So, you know, a lot of the state governments are investing in school tutors and extra resources to try and bring kids back up. And that's going to be critically important in the next 12 months. So can you catch up? So I imagine like if if you're in year 12, it's difficult, right? But if say you're in year eight. Without additional resources, probably not. Particularly if you think about also that kids come from different backgrounds. So we often think about everyone being the same, but this is going to impact obviously kids from lower socioeconomic backgrounds a lot more than kids from higher socioeconomic backgrounds. And so those kids in the lower socioeconomic groups are going to probably have suffered bigger learning losses and it's going to be much harder for them to catch up than those higher socioeconomic kids. Right. Claire, do you see a way through this, like how people might adapt? Do you think education systems will have to change? Do you think that young people's attitudes to education will change as a result of this situation that they're in and having to catch up? Will people just let go and sort of give up? How do you see that playing out? Well, we've certainly seen the education system rapidly respond this year and, you know, embrace online learning where we needed to and and have that flexibility. And so I think in some ways it's given us new ways of thinking that learning can be delivered in different ways and perhaps that will be something we can continue to build on, you know, not just the idea of online learning and, and flipped classrooms, but perhaps we can continue to resource young people through great education delivered you know, additionally online as well as in the classroom. In terms of attitudes towards schooling, I think it will be really interesting to unpack and watch that. For years, kids have complained about having to go to school. And so for in, in, the, in the shutdown, kids were desperate to go back to school. And, <laughs> and I think that is um, no doubt going to be remembered for, for this, this cohort that actually perhaps they'll not complain so much about going to school and, and want to be there, uh, understanding the social impact, but also the educational impact of, of being at school together. So perhaps it will make them more, more motivated as a group of learners. I certainly think we have learned a lot this year in, in the way that education can be delivered. So what about the impact then on you know, major life milestones? Will this affect the way that people who are now, say, under 25, have families? Will it affect the number of children they have, for example? Will it affect the relationships that they get into, sort of the meaningful lifelong relationships that they have. Are we talking about that depth of impact here or are we really talking about an economic impact, Angela? I think it probably will. It's going to be, look, it's hard because obviously we're in early days here and we can't study it. Again, back to natural disasters, it can lead, for example, to increased rates of teenage pregnancy. And, you know, that's a very complex sort of social economic type outcome and so we may see that there is some indication that that may occur 
as a rite of passage almost, but also just as other options become more difficult, people's life choices change and the cost benefits of those choices change. It's going to be interesting to see what how this impacts. And I think there are, I guess there are two ways of looking at it. One is that that locus of control that we were talking about, whether this changes people's perceptions of that and that they now see more of that internal locus of control and what they can control. We are seeing some evidence, for example, around climate change, that young people are more positive about the prospects of action on climate change, having seen how well governments can respond to these sort of crises, that perhaps you know, all is not lost, that something could happen in that space. And so we're seeing anxiety drop there. So we may see the generation or view change. And if we see that, then we will definitely see better long-term outcomes. But in terms of their relationships, I can't tell you that, you know, who they're going to meet, whether they'll meet more people online or whether they'll, you know, head out to the pub on the weekend (laughs) to meet that partner. um, I think we'll have to wait and see. Or we could just ask Claire now. Yeah, that's right. You can just tell us, can't you? But it, it seems like it actually is connected to what you were talking about because we've, well, we've all really spoken about how these are formative years in the socialization skills that, that people have, right? And so if they've missed out on that, it sort of seems intuitive that it would affect the way that they socialize and the way that they build relationships for the rest of their lives. Perhaps making them more aware of the the value of face-to-face though. So it'll be interesting to see what the bounce back is like as restrictions continue to be eased and events open up and social gatherings open up again. It's certainly been different for uh, and difficult for single people wanting to meet people this year. It's been very, very different to, to normal um, and just, you know, everyone's socialising. In terms of the, the total fertility rate, apparently it's been uh, dropping. It's estimated to be at about one62 babies per woman in Australia now. So that's, I mean, for replacement level, it's got to be 2.1 babies per woman to maintain population. We've been well under that for a number of years, um, but we were at 1.74. So we've apparently dropped a bit, which does happen in crises and economic crises. People get a bit worried about the the cost of of raising kids and so forth. But hopefully that's just a, a little dip that, you know, people's confidence rebuilds around that as the economy and and society sort of go back to normal. Yeah, I mean, it it will be, it certainly marked our generation forever and the ongoing impacts we, I guess, will only know in time how how it affects our psychology, how it affects our relationships, our desire to meet people, to have kids, our economic security, our fears around any of that, our mental health. I mean, it's, it's going to be fascinating to track in all of these areas in the years ahead. What about debt, Angela? If you're a young person, are you worried about the mounting debt and the fact that you might be the ones who have to pay it off? I hope not too much. Certainly in Australia where government debt remains very, very low and so you know, young people shouldn't be overly concerned at all about that. But certainly there's that sense of you know who is going to pay for this and who is going to bear the costs going forward. But look, because we've dealt with this so well in Australia, ultimately the costs probably are going to be quite limited once we sort of grow again and get back to normal, hopefully sometime next year. So I don't think they should be too worried about that government debt. And households are actually doing pretty well. So, you know, obviously a lot of young people did benefit from JobKeeper and from the increasing rates of JobSeeker or the unemployment benefits. So households are actually doing pretty well in terms of their finances compared to pre-pandemic levels. So Australia 
possibly comes out of this, at least the household sector, in a stronger position than it went in. And so hopefully young people sense that and feel that sense of security at least. All things considered then, what age would each of you not want to be? right now <laughs> well I'm glad I missed my formal <laughs> I think that first year at university and I know this is a very you know it's only 50% of the population still that gets to go to university but for me that was a real coming of age year uh, where I really learned a lot about myself and my friendships and you know explored a lot of new ideas and I think I feel for those kids um, having missed out on that first year so more than the year 12s? I think so. Again, they've, they've missed the formal. I understand it was a, <laughs> a very stressful year. But really, year 12 is a lot of work. And, and I understand it was a very hard year for them, you know, harder than any year previously. Yeah. But in terms of, if you think about, in my perspective anyway, the formative year of my life, it would have been that first year on campus where, yeah, the the images of that formal dress sort of went into the waste bin and I, you know, I came of age, if you like. And I think, yeah, it's those kids I feel for. Yeah, that's not what I expected you to say, but yeah, it's really, yeah. really interesting. It makes perfect sense. Claire, what about you? Oh, it's a very tricky question. I, I actually would, would jump to the other end of the spectrum and say I don't want to be my last years of, of life at this point because I, I know it's been challenging, but I am actually quietly optimistic about the future and I think even for young people who've gone through so much this year and so much adjusting to to the new ways of life I'm anticipating that there's going to be a, a lot of amazing things ahead even from this generation innovations and they'll really come alive with their entrepreneurial spirit and um, we, we'll see things build build from here so I, I actually still prefer to be you know at the young ha- have life ahead of me in in this um in this context, and I think, you know, the best years are are certainly ahead for these young people. This is great. You could not be more diametrically opposed about this. <laughs> Maybe if Angela had said birth, that's the worst place you could be. That would be about it. Thank you to both of you. We've got to round things off now with the watching brief, the space that you think well, you'll be watching and perhaps we should be watching as well. I might get you to keep going, Claire. Well, I think this is the space to watch. What's the ongoing imprint? lasting imprint that this COVID pandemic is going to have on Generation Z. I will be watching that for many years to come and seeing how we can rebuild from the challenges that that have come our way. Just on that quickly, we've heard this Generation COVID idea. Do you think that's what they will be? Uh, I do think it will be a a label that that sticks around either that or coronial generation. (laughs) I hadn't heard that. (laughs) The coronials. Whether whether we name the babies being born now the Generation coronials, or Gen Zs get that label, we'll have to wait and see. But just like the baby boomers were named after post-war baby boom, events like this can create a label that does stick for a generation. So it would, wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, I, I guess what I'm asking though is, will it be meaningful? Do you think it would be a good description of this generation? I actually do think it will be uh, meaningful because it has stretched on for at, at least the year. Yeah. It does depend how how quickly the bounce back is in terms of how how much it defines their life. But I I do think it's been long enough to be something that will be the talked about event for this generation in terms of their formative years. Angela, what are you watching? The thing I care most about is inequality. So I think the thing I will be watching most is particularly kids from more disadvantaged backgrounds that they bounce back along with everyone else. So they're the ones I'm probably most concerned about that uh, either they fall too far behind or they drop out of schooling altogether. 
and what policies we put in place for those kids in particular. They might not have engaged in online learning because they didn't have the environment or they didn't have access to the computers uh, in the same way as other kids. So that's my watching brief. I think they're the ones I'm most concerned about. All right, we'll convene in 60 years and see how those things panned out, shall we? (laughs) Yep, sounds good. Angela, Claire, thank you. I don't know if you were aware of this until we started today, but you have the honour, dubious or otherwise, of being our final guests for the series of So Now What? So thank you very much for helping us finish so strongly. I appreciate both your expertise and your generosity. Thank you very much for having us. Thanks so much. That is the end of the show and the series for So Now What? So thank you very much for listening. I'm glad you got to the end, if that's what you've done. If you've just started with this episode, then perhaps an odd choice, but thank you. You've now got nine other episodes you can go back and listen to. I do, though, in rounding out the series, want to say just a few really quick thank yous. I won't detain you long, but there are people that do need to be acknowledged in all of this, from Ali Aitken and Stuart Buckland at 10 Speaks, who did a power of work, not just when this podcast launched, but in the build up to it as we tried to figure out exactly what it was going to be. I still don't know if we know the answer to that question, but your work has been incredibly valuable. Emily Vidal and Gabriella White and Katie Galicio, who've done an enormous amount of work episode to episode, finding guests, coming up with angles that we might want to explore, finding audio grabs that decorate this so it sounds even better than what it really is. It's been an extraordinary contribution that you've all made. And uh, you've all got very, very bright futures uh, in this industry. In fact, you've got bright pasts in this industry, and it's been wonderful to work with you. Uh, To Chris Bendel, who has been sitting atop all of this, basically bossing everybody around, including me. It's been great to work with you, mate, on this. Uh, I know we work on a TV show day to day, but to be able to do something that's a little bit different, a little bit more long form that we can relax into and indulge some of our nerdier fantasies has been wonderful. So thank you so much for your work, Chris. And with any luck, we'll do it all again. Thank you for being a listener to this throughout. With any luck, we'll see you next year. Have a good one. Where are all these diseases that everyone is talking about? Governments love pandemics. And that was based on false information. I was a climate change denier. The conspiracy virus, examining two hugely prevalent conspiracy theories. We must declare a climate emergency. You cannot leave it any longer. There are so many individuals and countries who are profiting from what we're going through right now. Search for 10 News First Person wherever you get your podcasts to listen.